0: Amen, amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to Ephesians chapter two this morning. Uh, We're going to be covering from Ephesians 2 through Ephesians 4 today. So uh, some reading of some passages up front, uh, and and then we'll get into um, a really important message from the Lord to us today. So uh, sometimes I have the notion to start off a message with with, with kind of a a provocative, uh, maybe a sensitive prompt, Um, and most of the time I think better of it because I don't want to rile people up and get people in a bad mood before... Something else might make them in a bad mood. But today I didn't think better of it um, because the connection that I think we're going to make is just too good, even if it might be a little touchy or personal. So in just a minute, uh, just praise for that if, 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 if you think you're the, the sensitive type. but, but uh, And y'all aren't. Y'all, 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 like, y'all like some real-world examples. Um, but uh, uh, this may dredge up some hard feelings, and, and that happens sometimes. Uh, but that's just going to make us even more prime to get the help that God wants us to have today. So we're in a series called Inheritance and we've been repeating this week after week after week. Inheritance, it's all about accessing all of God's will for our lives. Uh, inheritance makes us think of someone's will for us, something that they left for us. Of course, God's will is about what he wants for us. So thinking about our walk with the Lord and this idea of we inherit blessings from God. And, and we've been talking about this on a very personal level, um, how we are children of God. We have access to our heavenly father and he wants to spiritually bless us and fulfill us in, in his fullness uh, that, that it might be in our hearts. So we have spent a couple of weeks talking about how this isn't really a material thing. Uh, as good as the world's good, world stuff is, that what God has for us is better. Uh, the spiritual blessings, they may seem intangible at first, but they make a demonstrable difference in our lives. Uh, and we spent last week talking uh, about how God wants us to take hold of the fullness uh, of life, the abundant life that we find through Christ. So again... You probably have noticed this, but we've been talking about this on a very personal, very individual level. Uh, as in, this is about us and God. Uh, really nobody else is even in, included in the conversation. It's me and God, you and God. We're all in our own little, uh, at our own altar talking to the Lord because this is, of course, um, is a very personal, uh, individual thing. Salvation is a very personal, individual thing. I, I can't accept Christ for you. you. You can't accept Christ for me. It's an individual, personal thing that we in individually must do, of course. So the the awesome thing, and really the overwhelming thing, and the spellbinding thing about about our God is, is God is omnipresent. So God is everywhere with everybody all at the same time. So he is never limited on what he can do for me because he's preoccupied with you. So God is not like me or you, whereas I can only talk to one of you at the, at the time, and, and, and I might give someone my time, and I might run out with, of, of time and, and can't talk to you. That's just part of life, right? Um, as parents, with you have multiple kids, right, you can only be at one place at, at one time. God is not like us. God is not limited in his resources. God is not limited in his ability to handle all of us at the same time. So that's a pretty awesome thing to think about, right? Uh, God does not have a finite measure of blessings. He has an infinite measure of light and life to give all of us, which is a pretty incredible thing to think about. He is a father like none other. Now, I said there was a parallel to our worldly lives that we can draw here that might be a little touchy, but I really think it's relevant and it's worth talking about. So just bear with me and we'll be done with this in about five minutes. So when it comes to an inheritance, that God has something for us and he has enough to go around for everybody, but when it comes to inheritance in an earthly, worldly sense, um, in line with what happens outside of our faith, in line with what happens in our families and in our, in our you know, uh, you know family relationships... Um, the, the, I, the conversation about inheritances isn't always a pleasant one, is it? Uh, now, I think you all can agree with me. Nothing seems to bring out the worst in people than dividing up inheritances across any number of heirs. Now, I think this is something we all can relate to. Maybe you've been in the middle of it. Maybe you've been on the outside of it. uh, But because unlike how it seems to work with God, when it comes to earthly estate and things passed down from one generation to another, there's only a limited amount of stuff to go around. So there's not enough for everybody. There's just a small amount... Of stuff in any given family. Now, obviously, no one really likes talking about this because it means that somebody passed away, and, and, and that doesn't make us feel good. Uh, but but uh, come on, we've all been either in the middle of it, or we've had parents in the middle of it, or family members in the middle of it, where, where the, the idea of, of dividing up estates, and the idea of, of divvying up an inheritance, it, it can get kind of nasty, can it? it? It can bring out the worst in people. I mean, I've seen people I've seen people who are on really good terms who are sitting down at the table together good terms and it turns completely ice cold because of this because somebody unfortunately passes away, and then it's time to, hey, look at the will, and then all of a sudden people realize, maybe I don't want to be friends with you, or maybe I don't want to be related to you anymore. (laughs) Can't undo that, right? Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the house today that have not so good stories about something happening where somebody, you know, where somebody went against someone's wishes, uh, and and maybe they changed the will, and it was not a good situation, not a very pleasant situation, uh, and God forbid, uh, maybe there's somebody here today that something was taken from you that was supposed to get to you, and, and, and again, I mean, it's just a bad experience, right? And you would have never thought they would do that until it came to the moment. Now, whether it's money or land or material things, people will go from mourning together at funerals and sharing memories together at family gatherings to cutthroat and never speaking to each other in a matter of weeks because of this subject, Right? Now, I don't bring this up to make you mad or to resurface you know, bad memories because I'm sure this is real for a lot of people, right? My family's been through it. People have been through it. This just happens. This is how it works, um, unfortunately. But if this does cause you to have some, some bad memories, you're, you're in the right pocket to get some help today, and all of us, I think, really need to hear this. Um, the reason it often goes down like this on the flip side of losing a family member um, is there's only a finite amount of stuff to share, right? Right? that no matter how wealthy somebody is, there's only so much of that wealth and it can only be divided up so many ways. There are so many stories of people leaving money to churches and charities and family members getting upset about it or this family member somehow coming out with the bag and everybody else is thinking, how'd that happen? But the moral of the story is, and we'll move on from this because I know it's some bad, bad, bad feelings for some. The moral of the story is someone's always feeling a little slighted when the estate is settled. When the inheritance is divided division is often the result. Isn't it true? That when the inheritance is divided up, often the one thing that's left over, more than anything, is division between the people that were supposed to have been united around the love of a family member. Even if things are done exactly by the books, exactly like it was written down and like somebody wanted it to happen well in advance, there's still a sense in our greedy, conceited minds that feels like we got a raw deal. Because ultimately, we don't like sharing that much. This is why the hardest thing to teach your children and the thing that you work the hardest on with your children is how they should share. Because we are not good at sharing, are we? And and this isn't just in terms of estates and inheritances, but in the broader sense of who makes what and how much money in the world is spread around. Isn't it true that all of us have an opinion about about how much they make, even if they work harder than us, and how much they make because they work less than us? Isn't it true that we all have an opinion about money and we all have an opinion about how they got what they got and how they really didn't work for it and how we should have more? We all have so many opinions. And even if we're well off, even if we're very comfortable, even if we're very blessed, we still kind of have a little bit of a, you know, salty opinion about how other people are doing. Why is that? That's why we all have so many opinions about the economy and the money flow. Even if we have all that we need and we work hard, we get a little crabby about the subject of what everybody else is passing around. Now, I bring this up. uh, uh, Now, I know this brings up all sorts of opinions, but maybe that's the point to see what kind of opinions are on our minds about this. But you're probably wondering... Why, are, why is this relevant to our conversation about spiritual inheritance if God isn't limited like the world is? Why are we talking about this? If God does not have a limited supply, if God never says to you, hey, I can't give you that because I gave it to somebody else, if this isn't relevant to the spiritual conversation, why are we having it? And if God promises, uh, uh, if God's promises aren't affected by what others get, uh, to me, you know, why does it matter? Because, Even though this subject is deeply personal and individual-based, the Bible doesn't talk about our spiritual inheritance in a vacuum. Even though our salvation is personal, our salvation is individual, the Bible does not talk about our spiritual inheritance on an individual level. The Bible does not talk about what God promises me, what God promises you, as if you and I are somehow disconnected from each other. The Bible talks about us about this subject, talks to us about this subject as if we're in a room of other believers, as if we are alongside of our brother and our sister. Suggesting that, suggesting that there's a there's as deep a connection between all of us on a horizontal level which is left to right, brother to sister, sister to brother. There's as deep a connection between you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ as there is with any one of us and God on a vertical level. As in, it, all, it's really easy to make Christianity all about me and God. Me and God up and down. I'm here. He's there. Who else is important? Nobody. It's just me and God. But the Bible talks about Christianity, and the Bible talks about our faith, and the Bible talks about our spiritual inheritance— Not just in a vertical way. Not just in a, hey, it's me and God way. But the Bible talks about it in a horizontal way. As in, I am alongside you and you are alongside me. We are in a house under our shared heavenly Father. But we don't like to share with our brother and sister, do we? You probably see where this is going as personal and as individualistic as our salvation is, it will always be. Don't mishear me. As personal as our salvation is, it will always be personal again. Nobody gets saved for anybody else. It's me for me, for me, you for you, right? But as personal as salvation is and always will be, our participation in the kingdom and our experience in the family of God is deeply communal. It's deeply relational. Nothing should make that more apparent than the church Maybe, maybe the way you've understood church in this spectator fashion, we come and we sit and we shake a few hands, but we get out and it's still very siloed to me and God. Uh, Maybe that's prevented you from getting this truly, but there's no way. There's no way you read the Bible and you don't see how this is true in core of the Christian experience. At the heart of God's will for us is a reality wherein we enjoy his inheritance within the larger spiritual family unit. And we learn how important it is that we are alongside our brother and sister. And that if something disrupts that, if something divides that, there's not just a disconnect left and right, but there's a disconnect up and down. Now, Paul has referred to us as heirs with Christ. We love that, right? I'm an heir with Jesus. I mean, isn't that incredible? Not me and you in a vacuum, but us. We are. You notice the Bible, never, the Bible rarely talks about us as childs of God in a singular fashion. It's always talking about children of God, sons and daughters of God. Because God likes to think about his family all together in one place. Because the greatest testimony for Christianity isn't isolated Christians all separated, pointing up at God. It's a body of believers singing out together. Some of the most important verses of Scripture you'll ever hear, Romans 8, echoes what we've studied in Ephesians. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. Notice the plurality there. We, not I am a child of God. Not you are a child of God. We, and that's important, isn't it? That's important that the Bible talks about it in a plural fashion. We are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs of God. And we're joint heirs or fellow heirs as in, as in, as in, as in. When God left his will for us, when God leaves his inheritance for us, it's not just me getting what I want separate from everybody else. It's me alongside you and alongside other yous. And as personal as I want to make it, and as individual as I want to make it, and as much as I can tell myself it doesn't matter about everybody else, it does, it does, it does, and it always will. In fact... Y'all know this. I mean, this is a, the most me sermon I could preach, right? Romans 12, 4, 5. As, the body, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. So our message for the last two weeks has been very Personal very individual very traditional baptist church kind of preaching right that you should lean into god get all that you can from god he has more for you than you've probably received and you should seek him personally individually intimately but that message isn't going anywhere those two sermons were first for a reason go back and listen to them if you want more of that but today we learned that this message is is just one side of the coin as in there's another side of the coin and that invitation, that obligation, that expectation is that we lean into God's family, that we seek a closer walk with our brother and our sister, our joint heirs with Christ. So here's, so here's where we jump back into Ephesians. And I'm just preaching through the Bible, so hey, talk to, talk to God about this if it, if it kind of rubs you off. Ephesians 2, we're going to jump back in. The Apostle Paul just has been talking about us accessing the fullness of God, right? Ephesians 2, by grace you are saved through faith. You are in Christ, you're seated in heavenly places with Jesus. He tells us about the new life, the full life, but to emphasize how the church and our fellowship with one another is essential, he's addressing the Gentile body of at Ephesus. So Ephesus is mostly Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. And he reminds them that there was a time not long before this that they had never heard of Jesus, and that they had never even heard of the God of Israel, because God was really exclusive to one group of people in one part of the world. And in that reality, the Jewish people had the market cornered on faith, and they weren't really all that enthused to share God with anybody. You'll never find a Jewish missionary. If you thought about that, you'll never find somebody from Judaism on mission to win disciples because that's not what they want to do. It's very insular. It's very, you're born into it. It's very, are you a Jew? Yeah, well, you should talk about the Jewish God. Are you not a Jew? I don't want. really have nothing to say to you because, right, it's mine and it's not yours. And and no offense, that's just how how it's always been for the Jews. And that's how it was in the New Testament era. They were still focused on that very Jewish culture. Paul urges, Paul uses this to lead into a larger conversation about the importance of never allowing the church to adopt that same spirit, even though it would be very tempting to. And this is what he's talking about, where everybody boasts of a personal relationship with God, but everybody treats each other in such an impersonal way. That's a very common experience within Christianity. Oh, have you heard about my Jesus? Well, let me tell you about my relationship with Jesus, but we treat each other very impersonally. Listen to this and, and see if you can sense how Paul comes right out of the gate talking. He's talked about salvation individually, and he immediately wants us to know how salvation and our faith and our participation in the kingdom is very communal and very connected. So we're picking up, we left off last week at Ephesians 2, verse 11. Now he's talking to Gentiles. And he's going to remind them how they once weren't a part of the family. Now they are. But then he's going to lean into this idea that God has created this body of believers. That he never wants it to go back to that very, very individual, very segmented way. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, as in the people, Jews looked down on them. Jews said, oh, y'all are uncircumcised. Y'all are not in the covenant. That at that time, you were without Jesus, Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Wasn't a good situation to be in for anybody. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is talking about Gentiles who were not part of the covenant, were brought into the covenant and under the covenant based on what Jesus did. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. Now he's talking about Jew and Gentile. He's talking about there is no longer this division of Jews, Gentiles, people in the covenant, people outside the covenant. Because now it's not just the God of Israel, it's the God of the whole world. The Old Testament was building towards something bigger, beyond just Israel. So he's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation or hostility, as in it's our nature to build walls up. Jews are over here, Gentiles are over here, church over here, unchurch over here. Very natural for us to do this. Paul says, hey, that isn't how it works anymore. God's broken that wall down. Having abolished in the flesh the enmity, the hostility that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinance so as to create in himself one new man now when he says man there he's talking about humanity one new species of people there's no longer jew and gentile there's now christian one new man from the two thus making peace And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So this is talking about before we even get saved, that God has gotten rid of those pesky labels that we often put on each other. Well, those people are Jewish. Those people are Gentiles. Those people are from that part of the world. Those people are from that culture. There's just no way they're ever going to get to God because look who they are and look where they're from. God got rid of all that stuff that was working against people. So that now everybody gets to come to him the same way, through the cross. Do you follow me there? Very simple, I think, but, but want to make sure. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So again, Jew and Gentile. And then he says this. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. With the saints and the members of the household of God. So notice, he goes from being singled out, from being separated, to all of a sudden, you're part of a family. You read that? We're now fellow citizens, joint In the members of the household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you see what God is doing here. He's bringing us together. He's building something that's for everybody in the same place or in a single shared mentality. So we get this recap. Jews weren't wanting to share God. The old covenant way was, was still entrenched in them. And now Paul says, hey, this is new. Jesus is not doing this thing based on race, ethnicity, nationality. There's no longer cultural or territorial base. But, but, this con- but this, the idea of sharing an inheritance, the conflict is deeper than just cultural bounds. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that it's not just going to be a difficulty between Jew and Gentile. Paul knows that even within a realm of only Jews and only Gentiles, that human beings are always going to have a problem with sharing, cooperating. There's always going to be this division problem in the midst of people. Because even though people can be tribal and act as if they always get along with people that look like them, we know that's not the truth. We know that, that people still disagree with people that they're from the same family from, right? Paul knew that even a church where everybody was literally related, there'd be the tendency to drift apart from each other in a risk of division. Even if a church was full of clones of ourselves, we would still find a way to disagree, wouldn't we? Y'all have heard the old parable of the guy who was stranded on the island and was there for years and years by himself, and finally a rescue team shows up and finds that there was two churches that had been built. And the guy asks, hey, why are there two churches? He says, well, I got mad that one left. Right? He was the only one there, right? That's the joke. But that's it, not, it's not really funny, right? That's a little bit too close to home if you think about it. So Paul moves on in Ephesians from expressing concern about Jews and Gentiles being united and sharing, and he's going to talk about the church community full of all kinds of people from all different walks of life. And this is so important, and it's so, so serious. And I, I'm not preaching this because I, I, it's fun. I'm preaching this because it's so big of a deal. And, and I grew up I grew up without any bit of knowledge of this. I grew up without any understanding of this, which maybe explains why I'm so focused on it. But we'll never truly understand or enjoy our spiritual, spiritual inheritance in isolation. I, I, listen, you might be as close, you, you might know somebody that's never been around another Christian in their entire life, and they might be as spiritual as you can ever imagine. But let me tell you, it could be better for them. That you and I will never truly enjoy our spiritual inheritance in isolation. We will never, ever, ever really get a hold of everything that God has for us. And we won't even taste it if we're a divisive person. We won't even get near it if we're in division. In a spirit of division. Think of it this way. Just like at Christmas time, you all get in the same room with your extended family. People you never see any other time of year. Because you want to make your grandma or your grandpa happy, right? Right? That's, I think, a lot of our experiences, right? And not that I don't want to be there, right? But we've all been in that situation before where everybody gets in the same room just so that somebody that we respect who's older than us, elderly, you know, grandparent, grandpa, grandmother, somebody older, we want to make sure that they are happy because, hey, we might not be around forever with them. If that's, when it comes to Christianity, unlike Christmas with your grandparents, God knows if we're faking it. You hear me? You might, can fake your, you might can convince your grandparents that everybody loved each other, but as soon as you're out of that party, nobody talks to each other. But they were just happy that you were there. But God can see when we're faking it, right? God knows if we're for real or not. And that's what makes Christianity so different than any other religion. Because it's not just about me and you separately. It's about us. And that's what made Christianity come across so mysterious in the first century. Look over at chapter 3, verse number 6. Paul is talking about, in chapter 3, about the mystery of Christianity. And when he says mystery, he's talking about people just couldn't figure it out. Why is it, why is it so weird? Why are they so focused on being together? Why is it all about a body? And why is it so focused on community? In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, this, is God's, this was the mystery of the church that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Three times that we, we see this idea of being a part of something. Fellow heirs, same body, partakers. He repeats himself three times. We will only partake in full. We will only tap into our full inheritance if we do so together. And this call to unity and fellowship and cooperation was so core to the Christian faith. I mean, don't miss this. Before Paul really explains what it looks like in practice, before Paul's going to start explaining to us how we can maintain unity and not be divided and not struggle to understand that we're all part of something together, before Paul can even get to that, Paul knows how hard this is. That he stops in the middle of the book and starts praying for us. Because he knows this is very unlikely that people are going to respond to this. So in verse 14 through 21, Paul, he writes it down, but he starts praying that we would receive what he has for us in chapter 4. So I want to I read through this prayer, and then we'll camp out around chapter 4 for the rest of our time. He says... For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So we see him you know, alluding to that famil- familial nature of this that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might through his spirit in the inner man. So he's praying that we would get a hold of our inheritance, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, as in you're not going to get this on your own. Somebody says to you, hey, why is the church so important? Show that verse to them. Because they're not going to get it on their own. And, and you, they may get closer than me right now, but hey, this is just what I read, and, and this is why it's so big of a deal. That you've been rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled. And, and that, that word you there is, in the south we would say it's y'all, because he's talking about plural use. That y'all would be filled with all the fullness of God to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. That means it's not just to the people at Ephesus. So, he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore... So when you see therefore, find out what it's there for... And it's there to connect that prayer. Paul has just said, hey, this is what God can do. I hope and pray you open your eyes and open your hearts up to the fullness of God. But in order to get there, you got to listen to what I'm about to say. We tracking with that? Therefore, he's transitioning from the prayer to how we can. And listen, so many Christians will quote that prayer as if, okay, I'm just waiting for God to do it. Where's the abundant at? Where's the exceedingly amount at? Where's the greatness at? Where's the fullness at? Listen, you're not going to get it that way. Paul's going to tell you how to get it, and it's not through waiting around and hoping God just pours it out one day. It's through doing what this next couple of verses say that we must do. You follow me there? This is like the doctor saying, you can be completely healed, but then walk it out before he says, if you take this medicine. (laughs) If you do what I'm going to tell you to do, exercise and eat right and take this medicine. Walk out, well, the doctor told me I'm going to get better. Well, how are you going to get better? I don't know. I'm just waiting on it. Did you listen to the prescription? No, I didn't. I I left. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Put into practice with all lowliness humility and gentleness with long suffering or patience bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there you go how do you get the fullness of god how do you walk in the full of your, the fullness of your inheritance how do you get to to be able to comprehend the full love of God, the glory of God, you walk with humility and gentleness and patience and love towards one another because you are endeavoring to keep unity as in you're trying to bring the body together. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And hey, this is—you know what that means? What that verse means? That means it's very natural that, that that the unity is disrupted. Division is inevitable. Division is natural. Division happens without people trying to make it happen. It just happens naturally. So it takes an endeavor. It takes some effort. Do y'all hear me on that? It takes some work. And here's his big, his his kind of bow on this. There is one body, one spirit that you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, above all, and through all, and in you all. So before you go out and say, well, I got God and you got God, let's all go to our separate rooms. Paul's saying, hey, there's just one God and there's just one Father and he wants all of you in the same place and he wants to be in you all and through you all. He doesn't really like the whole individual thing. Now, I didn't write that, and it's very easy to make this about me and me and me and you and you and you, and everybody goes in their own corner, because, hey, that's how it, that's just how it works, right? But God is our Father, and he likes to see all of his kids in one big family, doing what families do. So many people understand Christianity outside this one and only model. Let me show you how a lot of people relate to God. Let me tell you how a lot of preachers, I'm not talking bad about preachers that came before me. They did they were doing the Lord's work. I'm saved because them. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm just doing what I feel like I gotta do. But a lot of people this is how I was raised to think about God. The bank model. The drive-through pneumatic tube model. I'm in my car. You're in your car. They're in their car. I'm going through my line. I'm waiting for you to get out of my way. And I'm wanting to go to my pneumatic tube, hit the button, get what God has for me, and get on with my life. That's how church has been for several decades now in this in this country, isn't it? God's behind the glass. He says, hey, it's good to see you. I'm glad you came by. What do you need? I need another withdrawal. Okay, here you go. See you later. Love you. Come back next time. I've got more. Isn't that sad? Isn't that pathetic? I mean, you say, hey, it's not sad for me. I get what I want. I come back when I need them. I don't have the patience for other people. The reason why I don't get to go inside the bank is because I get stuck behind somebody. that just won't stop. They won't quit talking. And they won't stop asking questions and they're slowing things down. I want to be in my car, in my lane, behind the glass. I want to do it on my terms and get on. Is that Christianity? That's religion. Is that worshiping God or is that just worshiping us? I mean, really, that just looks like self worship, doesn't it? God is not a vending machine. He's a father, and we're his children. And if this is really about him, we need to start making it about him and doing what pleases him. And what pleases him is a unified body, a family knitted together and bonded together in love. And and we've talked about this before, but as as we wrap this up, do you know what Jesus did the night before he died? Do you know what Jesus did all night long? Let me tell you, he didn't get a good night's sleep. He prayed for you and me, for the whole church that would ever live. He prayed, Father, I'm about to leave the world. And as I'm no longer in the world, they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be, what's the word? One. That they may be united. Jesus, the guy who literally slept through a hurricane one night, Could not sleep the night before he died because he was burdened about the potential of division in his people 2,000 years later do you understand why he couldn't sleep do you know why he prayed all night long because we've taken what he did on the cross and we've drained it of something so core to it and yeah there are churches on every corner full of people but step outside those buildings and there's so much division isn't there Go in those buildings. There's so much division. And, and, and you say, well, Justin, that's the world's fault. I mean, why? of course the world's divided. The world's full of people that aren't, aren't doing the right thing. But isn't it our place to counter that division? Isn't that what Paul says in, in chapter 4, 1 through 3, that we would endeavor to fight against division and maintain unity with humility and gentleness and patience and love? Am, am I reading that abstractly, or is that what it says? But we're at each other's throats aren't we and we're so divided and and come on i I know i know i know we've got christians that could be in church but are so selfish they don't see the value of being together i'm not talking about people who are shut in but there are people who could be and should be but they won't even entertain it because they make such lame excuses right we've got christians who constantly try to stir up trouble amidst the body because they're Pharisees, they're always inspecting people, saying, "Oh, you're doing that wrong," and want to feel better about themselves. And is that how it's supposed to be? You've got Christians who see the world on fire and think we should just dump gasoline on it, and make it worse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. And we hear this call to unity, and we roll our eyes, don't we? Come on, we hear some. We hear a preacher say we should be united, and we think, "What a what a pathetic." Mess, I mean gentle, I mean rabbits are gentle people. I'm not gonna be gentle. Right? I mean division is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed against division, for our unity, burdened about potential of division and its impact on us and fallout from it. What this puts in perspective for us is that Jesus went to the cross to to, to do something, to die and purchase his church and not a bunch of infinite individuals that would be single out. But a body of believers. There's a difference in that, right? He modeled through this ministry that he was organizing a movement. He was calling together a following. He was gathering together his church. The very fact that he was up all night, on the, before the most important day, praying that the church escaped division, that it would be united and be one, stresses the importance of this, doesn't it? We're in this together. We're connected to one another. We're dependent on each other. We're called to each other. And again, we have full access to the presence and power of God when we are united, but not otherwise. And that's why he prayed all night long on the last night of his life on earth for the church to be united. Because if division is ignored and allowed to dominate, we lose our anointing, we miss our inheritance. Don't take my word for it. Jesus said this in his prayer. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And if you read the whole prayer, you know what the evil one is all about in this prayer? Division. That you would keep them from suffering division. And then in verses 19 through 24, he really, really hits it home. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. So that means you and me. Everybody that would believe through the the work of the church early on and on throughout it. And here he goes. That they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. You see what's on the line? That they may be one so that, and he repeats himself, not once, but... The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. I mean, Jesus, we hear it. We got you, buddy. You said it three times now. He yes, said, I'll say it again. That they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know. So what is the? Why is this a big deal? Because the ability of the church to impact the world is dependent on its unity and its efforts to be united, not divided. They, they may know that you sent me and I that you love them and, and, and Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Not just in, he's not talking about in heaven because he's going and they're staying. He's talking about that we might agree with him on this, that we might be on the same page, that we might be all in the same place on the same page walking down the same street. So he envisions a church with the same sort of unity that he and the Father had, which we, which you don't have much more united than that. He envisions us being united by the Spirit of God, full of the presence and power of God. He stakes everything on this unity. Now, there's a few reasons why this may sound in contrast to what most of us have been taught about Christianity. Because a lot of us We have surrendered and submitted ourselves to the pressure and power of division. So much that we defend it, we justify it, and we believe it's even necessary. Religion always tries to push the church away from this because it keeps us from doing our job and it's what the devil wants, right? Because he wants us off our mission. But Jesus makes it very, very clear. The church will never fulfill its vertical commission, God's commission to us, if we are not horizontally, left or right, brother to sister, neighbor to neighbor, positioned and postured. I don't have to tell y'all this, and we're about to go through an election cycle, so it'll be even more exacerbated. (laughs) Our world... Is so divided, we accept division, we embrace division, we uphold division in some ways, we support division in some ways, because that's what our nature loves to do. That's what's easy to do. Jesus took that enemy to the cross, he defeated that enemy in his death and resurrection so that we might have our inheritance. But we cannot and we will not experience or be empowered by this inheritance without pursuing and maintaining unity. Church, here's why we cannot avoid this conversation. Because Jesus' sweat drops of blood praying that prayer, and he poured out his blood on the cross the very next day to build this body where we are one. It matters for our church community here. It matters for our relationships that we conduct out of this church. But it goes beyond that because it it goes with how we relate to the world. It goes with how we interact with people that aren't yet part of our community so that we might show them what God wants to do in their life. Not just Christian to Christian, but Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably and live with unity on your mind with everybody that you talk to and everybody that you interact with. As in, don't fan the flames of division. There's enough of that. We choose unity. We pursue unity. The best chance we have of winning people to Jesus is to show them that we want them to be with us. Right? In Acts, we read about how they were always together, they always were in common, they always had one accord, and they also had favor with the people, as in the outside people. So Jesus was showing his love in the body, through the body, and that's what the prayer was, right? That they may be one that the world might know. If people are ever going to be convinced that God loves them, they must feel that love first through us. We can't seek to show God to people if we don't have the unity that he has commanded in our hearts now listen this may seem too harmonious to you this may not be the version of christianity that you grew up in but this is the new testament i can't do anything else about it there's a simple practical pathway that we're given again verse chapter four one through three The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all humility, all gentleness, all patience, bearing with one another in love, because this is how you keep unity and maintain unity. This is how we are one with each other and with God. This is how we stay on mission. So our walk should be one of eagerness and hunger for unity with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. I don't care if you're dealing with a Christian, a non-Christian, somebody you like, somebody you don't like. This, this is the pathway we are commanded to walk. And if we're going to get our full inheritance... We must choose unity and pursue unity and walk this path. You know what that means? That means if we've got anything, any virtues that are opposite of these in our hearts, we've got to identify them and repent of them. And thankfully, I've got a a a Thethorus. can't speak today. And I know what the antonyms of these words are, so I'll help you out. So if you've got arrogance in your heart, pride, if you, if you can't be humble because you're so, ah, I'm right and they're wrong and they should get like me if they want to be right, that's what humility is all about. That's what lowliness is all about. That means, hey, I'm not going to be arrogant or prideful, but be humble. If you've got callousness, if your heart is heart, if you're just really harsh toward people, if you never give people a break, that's not gentle. If you're always irritated by people and always judgmental toward people, That's not patient. And if you're just hateful, if you're selfish, that's not love. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. So I'm just doing this for you because Paul says, hey, be humble, be gentle, be patient, be loving, but you can't be those things if we're full of arrogance and callousness and irritation and, and selfishness. You know why the church quit fighting for unity a long time ago? Because we've just have, we've got too much of this stuff in our hearts, and we've just accepted division. The deceptiveness of religion and the craftiness of the enemy is such that it, he pretends to dangle the presence of God to us through other means, and we fall for it, and we chase it, yet we're still empty. Oh, well, we felt good for an hour on Sunday, but that's not what matters, right? There's only one way to receive it. You can't pray for it. You can't be anointed with it. You can't believe hard enough for it. You can't attend church services that blow your socks off to get it. The only way we're going to get the full measure is this pathway. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walk with humility and gentleness and patience and love and endeavor to keep unity. That's what leads to the fullness of God. So how do you overcome arrogance and pride? With humility. How do you overcome harshness and callousness? With gentleness. How do you overcome irritation and judgment? With patience. How do you overcome selfishness? With love. I know y'all, I know I'm like y'all, listen, the world irritates me and it makes me want to be harsh and it makes me want to be hateful and it just makes me aggravated, but that's why, that's why I need this message our spiritual inheritance will only be enjoyed when we make a concentrated decision to choose unity to follow this path the very path that Jesus took when he went to the cross where he where he did that he pursued unity in order to save us in order to unite us and you know how he did that don't you he forgave us in advance He forgave you before you even sinned. He forgave you before you even asked him for forgiveness with the chance that you might not. You say, well, that's Jesus, not me. I, this chapter doesn't say there's room for that excuse, right? We know this pathway works because we're products of it. We're saved by it. And that's what I think is so important about this. In order to stay humble and stay gentle and stay patient and stay loving, we've got to be a forgiving kind of people, don't we? You've got to forgive people that haven't directly hurt you but they've offended you. People that choose things that you don't approve of, but and that bothers you, you've got to forgive them. At the end of chapter four, verse 30 through 32, listen to this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, by whom you have an inheritance. For the day of redemption, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away with you. With all malice, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's it. That's the message, right? Pursuing unity requires we adopt a forgiving disposition. That is the secret. You know what the solution for that Christian that won't come to church because somebody hurt them 10 years ago? Forgiveness. You know what the solution is for that Christian that always gets angry at people and always gets upset at the world for being different than them? Forgiveness. You know what the solution is for Christians who can't see how to function in a world that's always offending them and always taking shots at them? Forgiveness. Why would I forgive them when they don't even ask for it? Huh? Why would I forgive the world when they haven't even asked me to forgive them? I don't know. Maybe because Jesus didn't. our divisive unforgiving hearts really show that we haven't really taken full advantage of our spiritual inheritance, have we? We never will until we stare these things in the eye and I'm, I'm tired and say I'm tired of being empty, I'm tired of letting the world string me out and drain me out. God is able, God can fill our hearts if we choose this pathway, if we choose forgiveness, if we choose unity. So I want to just ask you today, who, who would like to say publicly today, I choose this path? As hard as it may be, as much as the world makes it hard for me to do this, as much as they should do what they should do, as much as all the excuses, who would like to say, as much as I can choose with my own heart and my own soul, I choose this pathway because I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. I choose unity. I choose love, patience, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, so that I might have more of Jesus, so that I might show more people who Jesus is. Because according to Jesus, we don't even get off the front line if we don't choose this path. Church, I'm passionate about this because I listen to a lot of people talk about why the world is like it is and what's wrong and how can we fix this? How can we overcome this? All I know is what God has called us to do. And we can't get distracted and can't get divided and make division even worse. We have got to stand strong and walk this line because this is where our inheritance is found. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And and Lord, thank you for not being easy on us. Thank you for making it very clear what we got to do. Lord, I I don't know where this lands with everybody, but everybody here today has struggles, struggles with something that we talked about. Ultimately, the devil is trying to divide all of us. He's trying to divide our families. He's trying to divide our churches. He's trying to, he's successfully divided our world. And and we can't sit back and wait on other people to change because they're not going to change. They might not ever change. But what do we lose? What do we lose if we say, I choose forgiveness, I choose love, humility, gentleness, patience, I choose unity. And they may walk away from me as I move toward them, but let them do that. I choose unity. It's not worth working against what God is trying to build.